is death. Lord, we ask your blessing upon the message this hour. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You know, there's been something going on here at the church, I don't know, for about two months now. It's happened probably about six or seven times. And it involves the alarm system. When we leave, we set an alarm on the building. And if the alarm goes off, two things happen. First, outside of this building, chaos ensues audibly. There is a siren that whistles, and it confirms to our neighbors that they didn't like us, and now they don't like us more. (laughs) Um, It it just goes off and whistles, and it chooses to do it usually at about 2.30 in the morning. And the second thing that happens is a text and a phone call go out, and the text and the phone call will go out to me, and also to Debbie Pellegrino. And you all know Debbie. If you look at our yard today, Debbie mowed the grass. If you look at the weeds over there, she's cleaned out the weeds. It, it, the place looks great this morning. She brought in these flowers today. I am just so grateful for Debbie. So when the phone rings at 2.30 in the morning, God guilts me and says, don't let Debbie answer that. You pick it up. And I try to do that. But we've had this happen about six or seven times in the last month. Usually in the middle of the night... You come down here, the police meet you, and we couldn't figure it out. And all of the doors, and many of the hallways have these sensors. If you look right up there, there's one in the corner. Um, But the doors have these sensors on them. And usually it will tell you what went off. And it has repeatedly been saying the north door. Now, just so you know where the north door is, it's the door underneath the overhang. Okay, that's the north door's. And I'd go down there and check, and I'd tell the custodians, you've got to be sure you shut those doors. You've got to be sure they're pulled tight. And I'd be trying to figure it out. And the north door, the north door, the north door kept going off. This week it went off, I don't know, three times, maybe four. And finally I came down, and I decided I was going to check it out. And I crawled up on top of a ladder. And I'm up on top of the ladder above those doors looking at the sensor, which has a battery in it. And I was sure that that battery must be dying, that it must be losing its voltage, and I needed to put a new battery in it. And those, those sensors have a fail-safe on them. They have a, a little bit of a tamper-proof switch on them. So if somebody comes in here and tries to pull those apart so they don't send out a signal, it's going to send out a signal anyway. There's no way to avoid it. And so you've got to be real careful how you do this. It's real tricky. And I'm up there, and I've got my nose about three inches from the battery. And I'm trying to get that cap off to get in there to the battery. And I'm pulling and pulling, and they don't come off easy. And I finally pulled it off, and Jesus came out of the grave. Um, there was a spider in there. And I want to tell you what, you never saw anybody fall off a ladder so quickly in your life. I mean, I am down and running because that little green guy was just flopping and flipping and running around up there. And I'm like, ooh. And I got up there, and unfortunately, I have bad news for you. He is not risen. He is not risen indeed. Um, If that bothers you, I apologize. But I figured, hey, why let him come back, right? Inside of that little fail safe, inside of that little tamper proof, he had built a nest. And he'd been waking me up at 2.30 in the morning for the last couple of months. (laughs) This morning, as we look at what Paul has to say about the resurrection, he is not talking about spiders. 
I thought about that spider. Isn't it funny at Easter we will talk about, you know, the tadpole becoming a frog and how we'll talk about the little cocoon and the butterfly and it's all colorful and pink and purple and yellow and all that good news. Well, I want to tell you sometimes resurrection comes in a cocoon and it's a spider. It's scary. It's frightening. And Paul is addressing the issue in a very different way because the Corinthian church, and probably most of us here today, have been thinking about what the resurrection really means. He's been addressing a particular hypothesis that the people of Corinth have been spreading. And it is not original. It's not anything new. I'm not about to tell you about a hypothesis that you probably have not thought of. The hypothesis is this simple. Christ really didn't rise from the dead. And he is addressing that hypothesis. And it brings him to some pretty difficult conclusions. The first of which is, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, faith is meaningless. Look at what it says. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. There's no purpose in this. I'd add to that the fact that Paul is telling us that there's no fruit in that belief. I want you to think about it for a minute. Paul says in another place, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If Christ didn't raise from the dead, the fruit of the Spirit doesn't matter. And what that means is is that really you might be loving, but you're not going to be loving because Christ rose from the dead. You might be peaceful, but you're not going to be peaceful because Jesus rose from the dead. You might have peace and joy and patience and kindness and goodness, but none of that, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, is because of him. And therefore, there really is no real joy or love or peace. Let me put it in other terms. There's no hope for this war in Ukraine. There's no hope for you and me. There's no joy, no patience, no kindness, no goodness. And worse than anything, what that really means is that you and I gathering here today probably makes us the biggest hypocrites in the world because we talk about all that stuff so much. But if Christ isn't risen from the dead, and it's not really a fruit of the Spirit, and it's not really something in our lives, We're putting on the act. Hmm. Worse than that, we believers actually are still carrying the guilt of our sin. Look at what it says. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Just for the fun of it, I want you to see what 1 Corinthians 15, 18 says because here is where we know what Paul's speaking to. Just before the passage I read to you, he said this, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Remember I told you that means those that have died in Christ? What he's saying there is, if the resurrection's not real, they have died and been placed in the ground and that is the end of this story. There's no hope. There's no reason for us as Christians, and I'm not talking about you and me because we got it pretty easy, but in Paul's time in the city of Corinth, if you were a Christian, it could be real difficult. You might find yourself in Rome out on the street corner with a bunch of kerosene or, or, or at least something that fuel put on you and lit up as a torch for the night sky. You might find yourself thrown into the Colosseum to be eaten by lions. 
you might find yourself in a lot of difficult situations for your faith. So what he's saying here is, well, if those who have fallen asleep in Christ, there's no hope. They've perished. There's no hope. There's no reason for us to keep on doing what we're doing. And in the 19th verse, he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now let me summarize for you what I just said to you. If the resurrection's not real... Faith is meaningless. If the resurrection is not real, faith is fruitless. If the resurrection is not real, and I'm sorry, I used a big word because I couldn't figure out a way to say this right. I grew up in East Liverpool. That's my problem. It nullifies forgiveness. We're hopeless. And to be persecuted for your faith is a worthless endeavor. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are most to be pitied. Paul's really saying, you know, if, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, we are really pathetic people. It's the final conclusion. That is the hypothesis that was going around that Paul is addressing in the passage that we read this morning. So I wanted to give you that as background, and now I'm going to take what Paul said a verse at a time because this is going to be his response to the hypothesis. But if, in fact, that, that word but is a big word. Paul used... But in fact, when he says, but in fact, you need to know that that's a big but. He's put it there for a reason because it's a word, it's a phrase that Paul uses again and again. In Romans 3, he said, but in fact, righteousness. In Romans 6, he says, but in fact, you've been set free from sin. In Romans 7, 6, he says, but in fact, we're released from the law. What I want you to hear is that he is emphasizing something. He's concluding something and saying it in a way that really makes a difference. And so he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. He's saying here that this notion of resurrection, it's an integral part of the Christian message that we can't set aside, that we can't do without. He began... 1 Corinthians 15 and the first four chapters, listen to what he said. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you now stand, and by which you will be saved if you hold fast to the word that I have preached to you unless you've believed in vain. For I gave to you of first importance what I also received. And listen to this. He said, this is of first importance. That means this is what you really need to remember I said. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Church, our faith, it's always predicated upon Easter. It's predicated upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying in this verse, we must also understand the conclusion that Christ is the first fruits of something that is much bigger. What do I mean by that? If there's a first, if Paul took the time to identify for us that there's a first, first fruits, there is a second fruits. There's a, possibly a third, I don't know, but there's certainly more than one. That particular phrase, first fruits, comes out of the Old Testament. In the book of Leviticus, the first sheath, the first fruits, they weren't to be taken for yourself. When you threw your crops in and that began to produce, 
you took the first and you took it to God and you gave it to God in the hope, and not just the hope, the knowledge, the trust that there would be something more. And that first bit belonged to God. So when Paul says Christ has been raised from the dead, he is the first fruits, understand me. He is the guarantee of the second fruits. The first resurrection, Jesus, we are the second. And we can walk in faith and trust that. That is what Paul is trying to say in this verse. And here he stops to say, for by as one man came death, by one man also came the resurrection. It's pretty simple. The one man that brought death is Adam. The one who brings resurrection is Christ. He goes on to, to talk about the fact that by that one man death came, a man is also the resurrection of the dead, and as in Adam's men die, all die, so also in Christ will all be made alive. Understand this. The whole human race is Adam. That's what Paul's saying. All of us are going to die. We're all. But all that are Christ's, we are redeemed people. We have placed our faith in that resurrection. That's why Jesus said in John 5, 25, truly I say to you, I want you to think about this. Jesus said this before he rose from the dead. Truly I say to you, an hour is coming in the which the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Did you catch that? The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who are able to hear will live. Paul goes on to say, but each in his own order. Christ the first, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. It's different timing. Christ first, after three days of, after his death, the first morning of the third day, he rises from the dead. For believers will be made, and the word that's used here for coming, it's the word in the Greek, parousia. It can mean simply a person's presence, but when it talks about Jesus and his parousia, it means his second coming. You will recall that Jesus said in Matthew 24 these words, Just like lightning comes from the east and shines to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Paul goes on, and then will come the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, He'll destroy every rule and every authority and power, and he will reign until he's put his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. This verse starts with a participle then. And what comes next? It means sequentially. Then will come that second coming. Then will come that resurrection. You can count on this. Paul is talking about the fact that when Jesus returns, the dead in Christ will rise. Paul's then means this is an orderly thing. This is what happens next. It will be the process of Jesus handing his kingdom back to his father God. And note most, most of all what it says here for a minute. He will turn over his kingdom after he destroys every rule and every authority and every power. I'm going to say, well, why would Jesus want to destroy every rule and every authority and every power? I don't know if you've heard this or not, but most governments of the world, 
most governments of the world, they're not a kingdom of God. They're a kingdom of us, and we're fallen. In Colossians 1.16, which is a great hymn of the church, it's talking about the creation of God, and it says this, By him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. They were all created through him and for him. And so when this verse says that he's going to deliver the kingdom of God after destroying every rule and every authority and every power and placing them under his feet, you've got to understand He's going to wipe it all out because he's got something better to give. You've heard many times the allusions that are found in the Psalms about the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The final enemy that Christ will destroy is death. Now you may say, isn't that what Easter is really all about, Joel? Well, yes and no. We right now are celebrating the fact that he conquered his own death. But I've got news for you. It could be tonight, it could be tomorrow. I may go or you may go. Because it's appointed unto people, men, once to die. If you wanted to tear this passage completely apart that I've read to you today, it will take eight Sundays. Minimum. So I decided to do it all one day. No, I didn't. I'm not going to do that to you. <laughs> This passage even encompasses a thousand-year reign of Christ. We don't have time for that today. But I want you to get the gist of it. I want you to understand that since we don't have eight weeks, what we have read we need to get a grasp of. And I'm going to take you back to Romans 8, and I want you to listen close. Paul writes in Romans 8 these words, I consider that the suffering of this present time is not, compar- is not worth comparing with the glory of that will be revealed to us. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage and corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know the whole creation groans together in pains of childbirth until now, but not only the creation, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we await eagerly for the adoption as children, the redemption of our bodies, and in this hope we were saved. Now hope that's seen isn't hope. Who hopes for what he already sees? But if we have hope for what we do not see, we wait with patience. You know what Paul just outlined for us, church? What faith is. That's what faith is. You wait with patience for that which you know is real, but you cannot see. But it is a reality for you. And why do I mention this? Because when we started this message today, you will recall that I told you Paul was talking about faith. And there's this hypothesis that if Christ hasn't been raised, we have no hope. Faith is the substance of what we hope for. And Paul's answer is faith in the resurrection, faith in the hope 
You may recall that I put this slide up for a minute, and I said that if, if Christ is not resurrected, it's meaningless our life is. It's fruitless our life in Christ is. We have no forgiveness in Christ. We have no hope, and we are, if we are persecuted for our faith, it has no meaning. But Paul said this in Romans 8. In this hope, we were saved. Hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we don't see, we'll wait for it with patience. Now you may remember that this morning, Mark came out and read John 20. If you've ever read the account of the resurrection, either John 20 or Luke 24, which I'm going to read with you in a minute here, you would note something. I'll tell you what you'd note. You would note that those disciples had no concept that Jesus was going to be resurrected. They had followed him. They had believed in him. But they had stood there on that day when they beat him. They crucified him. And they were there when they, they, they knew, they at least heard of the fact that he was placed in a tomb and he was dead and gone. Hope was out of there. Hope was not to be had. When those women came to the tomb... If it weren't for the angels telling them in the book of Luke, they wouldn't have any idea. You'll recall they ran back and they tell the tomb is empty and Peter and John run and all it says about them is they marveled. Even a few days later, these guys walking on the Damascus Road still have no hope. And the reason I point that out, church, is because we can go through life and get so beat up by so much of everything Wars and rumors of wars. News and more news through our radio and our television. It's depressing and it runs you down and it wears you out and exhausts you. Finally, you can probably, some of us arrive at a day where you can't find that hope anymore. Much like those disciples. You know what Peter said? Peter didn't say, let's just go up in this upper room and wait for Jesus. Peter said, let's go fishing. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, the women went to the tomb. They took the spices they had prepared. The reason they did that, they were going to complete the embalming of that body. They found the stone was rolled away from the tomb. When they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. I want to stop right here for a minute. Women go out to finish off the embalming process. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They walk in. The body is gone. They didn't say, hallelujah, praise Jesus. He's risen from the dead. It's Easter. Mary and Martha didn't look at each other and say, he's risen. He's risen indeed. It says they looked perplexed. It says they looked and they're like, what more could they do to this man? You ever lived in that place where you've asked the question, what more could happen to me? You ever been there? I mean, sometimes. And while they were perplexed about this, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. They were frightened. Now you may read and say, well, and by the way, those two men were angels. You may read that and say, well, 
What were they afraid of? The man that you have spent all your money on, the man that you have prepared meals for, the man that you have followed around the countryside, they just crucified him a couple of nights ago. They just killed him. And we come to his grave, and his body's gone, and suddenly what they saw were two men. We know they were angels. Wonder what they were frightened of? Now it's not what more could they do to him. Now it's what's going to happen to me. They were frightened. They bowed their faces. And the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. Church, you know what we do every Sunday here? We believe that every Sunday is a little Easter. We celebrate again that Jesus lives. That's what we sing about. That's what we talk about. That's what we're here for. But for many people, including some of us, including the Marys and the Marthas, and the Peters and the Johns amongst us, that Easter that we have every Sunday morning, Sometimes it gets eaten up by the Good Fridays that we have on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Some of us may die a few times and some of us may die a thousand ways. Those deaths come to us and we respond in so many different ways. Some of us die a little bit at a time and some of us live a little more. What's the difference? I think it's the presence of the Easter in our lives or the lack thereof. If Christ is risen and risen indeed, then you and I as believers in Christ are risen and risen indeed. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus lived his entire life knowing that he would be ridiculed, abandoned, mocked, unaccepted, and left out. And yet he lived. I I don't mean he overcame the grave. When I say that to you, what I'm saying to you is, is he knew that his whole life would be spent having people laugh at him, abandon him, turn on him, mock him, not accept him and leave him out. He would have never been in a gym and gotten picked to be on the team. Are you with me? But he lived into it. He knew that one day he'd be put on trial under false pretenses. He would be lied about, he would be betrayed, he would be abused, he would be slandered, and he would be tortured. And yet he lived into it. He knew that he would be beaten and scourged and ultimately crucified. And yet he lived into it. And every day of his life, hear me on this, every day of his life Jesus knew that he would die at the hands of people that he actually loved, some of whom at one time loved him. And he lived into it, and then he died. But here's what Jesus knew. He knew that that death had meaning. 
He knew that that death had purpose. He knew that that death was what was required to forgive the very people that destroyed his life and killed him. And he died. And that forgiveness that he offered, that he won on that cross, that forgiveness is the love he declared for you and for me. But even that, stay with me here, even what happened on Good Friday, it's a moot point if all he did was live into it and die. You see, what makes it all really, really matter is not that he died, but that he rose. And so when Paul says he's the first fruits, he's the first fruits of our resurrection too. You've heard, you have heard me say, I've said it many times to you folks, because he lives, we can live also. But I want you to understand that today in a different way. Would you agree with me that living is hard work? Some days are better than others. In fact, some days can be spectacular. But I know very few people that go through life without the difficult and the hard coming their way. And when those days come to you, I want you to be mindful. Because your difficulty and your hardship likely was unexpected. Jesus knew straight on what was coming. You know, if, if I knew the other day, y'all know in December, I pulled out of the road that I live on. I turned left squarely into the path of a school bus, missed the school bus, but the guy that was passing him nailed me. Um, totaled, my, totaled my car. I had to go get a car. Well, the last time we had a real nice sunny day, I got that Honda out, and I wasn't even on the street yet. I was in my driveway, and I looked left because that's the way I had the accident back in December, I looked left, there was nothing coming, so I turned right, and, and that Cadillac was sitting right, right there in front of me. And my neighbor had that look on his face like, I always thought you were an idiot, and now you've proved it. Um, <laughs> I went over in the other neighbor's grass. We had a party in that mud. It was just so much fun. If I had known that was coming, I wouldn't have turned right. That's how life comes at us. You don't know what tomorrow holds. And I want you to be mindful. The unexpected. There's grace in that. Jesus knew coming in. Jesus knew when he was born what he was here for. God sent his son into the world to die for the world that he loved. Jesus knew that coming in. You don't know what tomorrow holds. There's a grace in that. If you knew that tomorrow your job was going to be lost or your spouse was going to die or you were going to contract cancer, there's not much you could have done but pray that it wouldn't happen. Jesus lived full well knowing that even though he prayed, he was going to that cross. And What I want to tell you to understand about Jesus rising from the dead church, what Paul wants us to understand what God, I believe, wants us to understand is because Jesus lives, we can live. The resurrection is fuel for life. The bottom line is faith in Christ and in his resurrection is fuel for our living, what tomorrow holds. I hope you have a blessed Easter. I praise God that you're here. And I'll praise God that you're here again. Let's sing together.